0: So, what about last episode did you want to add nuance to?
1: Are we starting, like, the episode right now? Is this you trying to organically start an episode, or what are we doing right now? Sure. Yeah. Okay. You, I just didn't know if you are being a stickler on a good intro, or what. I didn't know. What, I don't know what we're doing these days.
0: Yeah, neither do I, so. Okay. It's all good.
1: Just something. So, something I wanted to rehash. Not rehash, but throw in that I was not able to. Um one of the things from a FAA best practices standpoint that um, I really didn't learn about until the airlines but switch position so we talked we just beat it into the ground uh, the last 10 degrees why you use them when you use them my stance your stance whatever but beyond that there are items like that that may have no no purpose they're basically for all intents and purposes a superficial switch operationally like it may not be a make or break item it may do something but it's basically superficial and so like for example like on the lear that i'm flying right now we have uh it's a three position switch for these strobes and the beacon so all the way down is on in the middle is just the beacon so the red a red beacon on the tail and a red beacon on the belly and then all the way up is strobes and beacon now, the strobe beacon function, so to go from just beacon to strobes and beacon, it doesn't do anything when you have weight on wheels, it's called. So you have a squat switch that gets tripped when there's weight on wheels and opens the circuit, I guess. And so it can't, it doesn't make a connection. And then when you get weight off wheels, so once you get in the air, The weight comes off the wheels, obviously. The the circuit's closed. It turns the strobe lights on because that's when you need them to be on, not on the ground. So even though the switch position does nothing on the ground when you have weight on wheels, you can still use it as a memory aid for certain things. Or when I was making the comment the the other day, fly what you're flying when you're flying it. I agree, and I've professed that for a while. But also... I don't want to teach somebody just 150, Cessna 150 specific stuff when they're going to eventually very rapidly, probably, maybe go fly 172 and then an Arrow and then a Seminole or a Diamond or whatever. And then they're in a King Air and then a CRJ and then a 737. So I would rather teach them hey, you know, when you're going to cross, when you're going to cross a runway, even in the Lear, I turn that strobe light on when I'm crossing or occupying an active runway even though i know it does nothing because it's the the mode i am used i'm using a principle that applies to all airplanes not just the airplane i'm flying does that make any sense what do you think of that
0: yeah um.
1: knowing it does nothing but like according to like operation lights on or the lights on initiative whatever it's called these days by the faa in the aim their best practices say you know when you're Crossing an active runway, or you're on an active runway, you should have you should be lit up. And even though I know that switch does nothing from the beacon to the strobe position on the ground, I still turn it on as if it does.
0: Yeah, and you said this too with using that to remember um, whether you're cleared or not for different things, right?
1: Yeah, so like you know, if we're at a controlled field and we're getting similar, so what you would hear, you're holding short of the runway. You wait for landing traffic. The traffic comes in. They land ahead of you. ATC tower calls you up and says, "You know, uh, you know, so, so Skyhawk, so and so, a line up and wait." Then you're going to turn on almost all of your lights. But so you, if you have a two position, like a, a two, um, two, a landing light and a taxi light type concept, and you ha- you may have to be creative. if You want to exercise these principles and feel like a big big jet pilot or whatever. But um. I would just turn your taxi lights on. So in the Lear, it's again, it's another three position switch. You have off, middle position is just your landing lights. And so those are like kind of hashed and they disperse the light wide, not not far. You don't have a lot of range with it. It's not very it's not as bright, but it casts it wide so you can see, you know, if you're going to make a turn on a taxiway or there's deer and things like that. So it would just be so if it's a lineup and wait, it's just um taxi lights. When you get when you get clearance to take off, you know Skyhawk so and so clear for takeoff runway two three left or whatever it is, then you go to landing light. So switch positions. So that's your clear for takeoff. Clear for landing would be the opposite of that. Then so you're coming into land, cleared for the approach. Taxi lights come on. Cleared to land. Landing light comes on. And that's not necessarily so superficial to you internally. It's superficial because you obviously can't see the landing lights outside. Um, but you know, you have the switch position available to you on the inside. Yeah. It's not, that's not so much like a, Hey, the, you know, like where the, where the, that came to my mind in the last episode, uh, we were talking about the 10 degrees. I was harping on this 10, last 10 degrees. It's not so much about that. It's just about when I, when I make the correlation of, I don't want to do an unstabilized approach if I can help it. And because I know a Cessna 150 has 40 degrees of flaps, and I know you're never too high, and all those things. But I try to teach things that apply to everything. Yeah, when you're getting somebody ready for a check ride, they need to know the numbers, they need to know the limitations. I get all of that 100%. But from an entry level, somebody I'm building somebody up that's never flown an airplane, I need to teach them things that are going to be just big, a lot of it needs to be big picture. A lot of it needs to be risk management, threat and error management, big picture uh, aeronautical decision-making things that they can apply to everything.
0: What do you see as a captain now, like people coming in as first officers who have gone through the, the training uh-huh. who have never been in that airline environment where you said you had all of like your bad habits kind of stomped out when you were at the airlines because mm-hmm. their programs do that. Mm-hmm. We're well, in the corporate jet world. Most of those companies don't have that you know, rigorous. Rigid. Yeah. Yeah. It's not that rigid of an operation and it varies, you know, all different companies. Yeah. Um, there's no like state, like hardcore standard, like the airlines do right. uh, in a part, uh, 121 operations. What, what are some of the things you see? That's just like, man, if CFIs or students were focusing on this, like from the beginning, It just make everything, like, even if they don't end up flying a jet, or if they do end up flying a jet, it's just going to be better for the industry and better for everybody up in the sky.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's, I think an instructor, obviously, they have such an important role, of course. And, you know, the principles of learning, you know, one of them is primacy, which, you know, all new CFIs know and remember. Um, and I think they I think they allocate that. I think they allocate that concept on, on their on their students, but we all fall short there. And, but primacy being one of them, the things you learn first kind of stick with you. You know, and and if you're a new instructor, you, you kind of don't know what you don't know, and I know I certainly misspoke or in the heat of the moment when you're in the airplane talking about something, that specific time you said, no, don't do that. You may have been right. But they may have taken it like the, an aspect of that or time and place. So it is so tough that, that you can't, you're not 100% in control of what the takeaway is. You can be pretty much 100% in control in the lesson and and what you're putting into it. But the takeaway, you're not so much. So that, that I, I always thought that was tricky. And it takes a long time, I think, to really maybe get more patient and, and wait until you have time to dispel Maybe the notions that or the takeaway. Make sure it's exactly what you want the takeaway to be. You know, because I remember some things that were reinforced in the wrong way. Like my takeaway was my my instructor was good, and they corrected it later, but I always held on to and I and I always had to fight. No, 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 no. It, that's not what they meant. Like I could think about the the um, and I can't recall any specific examples, but I know that I could re I could um, I remember the lesson. I remember kind of the the talk or the you know the the, the uh, reprimand, but then it took a long time for me to be able to like beat it out of myself that I was taking it the wrong way and applying it. I was applying it the wrong way, I guess. But so the instructors have a huge they have a huge. I mean, just edit all of that out. I don't know what the hell I just said. The instructors have a huge role, but I think one of the things is I think personality. That's one of the things I'm seeing now is you have to want to be, just like our conversation last time, and I tried to make it, I tried to my best to show everybody how good of pilots you and Scott are. Because I know on here, like I think we've, we we talking up. yo, know, I'm a professional pilot, and there's a little bit of a notion that I'm probably a decent pilot because I'm a professional pilot. And, and that may be true, you guys however not being professional at this point in time not doing it professionally I don't know if they're that could that could that's a very wide range you could be a really good you know amateur pilot or whatever because you don't take it seriously or you can commit to it and be a student of it and have really good stick and rudder skills and good aeronautical decision making and good airmanship and that's you guys. And I was trying to really, you know, put a spotlight on that for kind of this topic. because I don't want it to sound like I'm attacking you, but like you could exercise like good airmanship and choose to not do the flaps 40 or you can do it because you want to do it and not really care. And so and I'm not saying that's, I'm not saying that's wrong, That would not be what I'd want to see a student do. That's not what I would teach them to do. You guys have the skill levels to be able to deal with that, and we talked about all that. But I think it's more of a personality thing out of what people come in with. They want to have integrity. They want to do things the right way, whether the airplane's going to tattle on them or not, or whether there's an FAA inspector in the jump seat or not. I think they have to want to do it right. Now, there's also company SOPs too. Which I don't know if that was more your your thing, but what you're getting
0: at, I think it's more for like the um, the CFI's or the students out there, like going through the initial training stuff. Yeah, or just people who have their private, maybe even having like an instrument rating, have their own plane. Yeah, that listen and don't really go professional, but there's just aspects. Because everyone I know who spends time that I knew learned how to fly similar time that I did and then became a professional pilot. Everyone has these changes with the way they view it from going through that experience. And I'm just, I don't know how to replicate that. And it's difficult too, because
1: I'm miss, I am somehow missing what your point replicate. what what do you want to replicate?
0: Replicate that change in thought process Uh that someone goes through when they be when you are flying professionally for a living, uh-huh. and then you're going back to GA, you're taking a lot of those aspects.
1: With so you. you wanna you wanna somehow get a CFI to teach. So look, let's say it's a Part 61 flight school. Yeah, and there's somebody who comes in; they're in their mid 40s, 50s. They always want to learn how to fly. And this—it's this CFI's job to teach them, and how do they instill in that person kind of the 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 professionalism and stuff and the airmanship?
0: Yeah, just the the higher standard. It's like
1: I think that's personality. But also, the CFI needs—they need to know. And if they're a full-time instructor and that's all they've ever learned, it's that is a certain like that's a that's a track or. And, and I mean, I'm not belittling it. I love flight instructing and I, I loved it a lot and I wish I could do it more. If I could get paid, you know, eighty grand a year and do that full time, I probably would. But not everybody wants to do that. Obviously, I've forgotten so much and I sound like I sound like I'd be a crappy instructor. And I probably would be for a while, maybe indefinitely. But anyways, I think the it's the personality of the student.
0: I think that's as a huge factor, but it's also one of the ironies of aviation that your first job a lot of times that a pilot has is teaching other people how to fly, you know, for the first time. Definitely Um, ironic. When they, I mean, obviously, you know, getting your CFI is no joke, but it's also not actually going out there. Like, I think Ryan's phenomenal. That's why I always recommend anybody up there, uh, Northern Ohio, Northwest Ohio is learning how to fly. Eccles, because he's, flying jets for his main job and he's just like basically teaches because he enjoys it mm-hmm. but he's he's got all of those mentalities like he's someone i've i saw go through that change and he went through a, a four-year school for aviation mm-hmm. and i still saw him go through you know 141 program bgsu i still saw him go through a big change when he started flying the the, jet, the hawker
1: yeah, the, the 141 is not, I mean, it's going to definitely get you, but look, it's, it's definitely going to get you more than what the 61 will because the CFI is, they're doing a higher volume of instructing, which means unless you get them right when they start, they do have a little bit more experience under their belt. They had a rigid experience themselves, likely, because they were a graduate from that school. So it's basically a generational Upon generation upon generation, benefit of the SOPs in the collective learning of that 141 school, you know what I mean. So yeah. all of those things just completely, you know, um, they're they're in every facet of their training is the rigidity and the SOPs. It add down to everything, yeah. Um, you know filling out paperwork there's probably a certain way when they do their logbooks when they do like when they're renting the airplane or signing the airplane out there's a, just SOPs from start to finish and so when you're the beneficiary of that as a as a student your instructor was originally a student there and they just came all the way up so everybody so everybody's really in tune with the whole system and they the and the CFI probably gets the experience quick Um, the SOPs are there, um, as a backstop, um, and that kind of maybe takes the place of some aeronautical decision-making. Like if the visibility is less than this, you're not going, even though there's a much lower legal limit and there's no, like, let's say you're a fair weather flyer typically and the airspace you're about to go fly in, it has a, um, the typical day you go fly is 10 miles of visibility. The legal limit is three down to three miles of visibility. Does that make that smart? No. Maybe it's one mile and you normally go fly in 10. That doesn't make it a good idea just because it's legal. And so when you have SOPs, you know, your school or your 141 school, or it could, this even a Part 61 school could do this too. But typically this is more found in a 141 where they will have a higher limit above what is legal in order to be a backstop for safety. And then that means you don't have to use your head as much. Okay, yeah, usually go fly when it's 10. The legal limit is three. So, you know, I think when it gets down to seven or or five that I'm not going to go fly. Well, no, the school has already made that decision for you. You don't have to exercise that judgment. They've made the decision for you. So I see that aspect of it. Um, But I don't think the 141 school is necessarily going to it's not going to do for you what going and becoming a uh a professional and what a professional like does lives eats and breathes you know the sops and and stuff
0: yeah like how many of the people in that process and i'm sure there's some but percentage wise it's probably not that many people who have are in that school teaching or in administration that have 135 operation or 121 operation background right. with right. airlines or you know corporate backgrounds going back to teaching because it's like usually it's the first stepping stone for most yeah. cfis which yeah. is you know in a way it's kind of sad it is um that's why i think that when you find an instructor that's good because obviously there's instructors who aren't doing that that aren't that great and there's instructors who are doing that that are phenomenal yeah um, but I'd say, it's, you know, my gut feeling tells me, just based on Don teaching us, it's like, I'm, I just feel so fortunate yes. that he was just, he just had, he grew up with his dad owning a flight school mm-hmm. out of uh, Cleveland Hopkins, wasn't it?
1: I don't think so. The dad there were some there f- out near Cleveland. They had their yeah. own strip.
0: Yeah, the dad owned a flight school, so he grew up with the flight school going on, and then like, owned his own airplanes, all kinds of airplanes, his own airport, had a King Air at one point, like a King Air 90 as his personal plane, Uh, but he made his money outside the aviation industry, so he could afford private strips and hangars full of airplanes and stuff like that, and then would just literally teach for fun, and he picked and chose students. Scott and I made the the cut, and uh, that's how he did it, and it's just like, I wish I could Give that to everyone, and just it's just impossible. But I always try to encourage people to f- just find that gem CFI somehow. Like,
1: There's almost nothing more important than finding that mentor type CFI that you won't necessarily outgrow. And even the like I've said this before, and I even the crappiest CFI can teach you probably something that your awesome twenty thousand hour retired airline captain or retired military colonel, you know, didn't teach you like if your primary guy was the military colonel, there's something that the crappiest instructor can teach you that they didn't. That's just the way life is. But yeah, to find somebody that you're not necessarily going to outgrow, that can be more of a mentor, um, you know, get you obviously get you through your certificates and ratings. But when you're done and you're just out at the airport, they're around they're there for like, hey, you know, what do you think? I'm I'm gonna make this flight. What do you think of this weather? You know, and yeah, just stuff like that. Because the learning is never done, and it's always nice to have that other opinion. That that's like crew resource management, and we're talking about all these single pilot, single engine piston airplanes. These 172s and Cherokees. You, the crew resource management is like like a myth. Like it, there's no way to really put that in, like, yeah, I know, oh, you can use ATC, and you can use, you know, if your wife, even if she's not a pilot, she can still hold a chart for you, and she can still follow along on a map, and that is all true. But none of that replaces a before you take, when you're in flight, and that's when your wife is helping you, career, career resource management, all valid. Most people probably need a lot of the help before they even take off. Yeah. You know, like we're always talking like, hey, you know, what do you think of the weather? When do you think yeah, how about we give it another half hour when the visibility gets to this, we can take off or when that storm cell gets to here and it's out of the way, we can take off things like that. We're constantly, you know, conversing, exchanging information and narrowing down and we're each taking a little piece from each other. And re- continually refining the idea, this composite image of safety, we're kind yeah, of crowdsourcing you, it, yeah. and we and everybody needs that. I think.
0: When you you mentioned, we'll go back to it. Circle back to it. The a uh, one forty one structured school, and that's part sixty one schools will do this too. Like really dialing in you know, putting in a safety margin that's higher than, you know, what the legal minimums are yeah. and just using that across the board in the flight school, which I'm not uh-huh. disagreeing with, but do you think there's a, an aspect of that that can, um, taking that decision away from the students is helping with safety in the short run and expense with the long term? Cause it's like, oh, you don't even have to think about it, bro. You know right. that kind of mentality.
1: Yeah, it could it could be certainly be probably seen that way. I don't disagree that maybe that SOP or that um, what do I want to say? That limitation shouldn't maybe be running in the background with the CFI, but it'd be really interesting for that to be open. And maybe it is. May, maybe there's flight schools that do this. I mean, I I don't know that much you know I don't know that much so um but I would let them I would let the student make that because how do you you know and for a private you know a lot of the time they're just showing up they're texting their instructor just showing up because the weather's good and then they go um and there may not they may not really be clued in on what's happening in the background with the cfi watching the weather all day and all night and all morning all that good stuff so maybe you know but yeah, it could be it could be a long term detriment in terms of honing in the aeronautical decision making because they've always had somebody making the decision for them. When yeah. somebody's getting ready to go do a solo cross country, you know, um, or getting ready for a check ride at the latest, it'd be interesting if they had no backstop and letting the instructor kind of be like, you know, I know I know the legal limit's three and it's three three and a half miles, you're good to go. And see if they still be like, dude, I've never flown on this low of a visibility day. We should probably cancel it. See what they do. Yeah. You know, but of course you have to lay the foundation for them to, to really understand that the job number one is safety and aeronautical decision making. And they and, and it's, it was not really well um, it was not really harped on for me. And I didn't really harp on it with my students either. And I think about that a lot. Um, as I know it now, I sure wish that I that I had taken more time with them in, in this aspect especially. But they need to have the foundation from day one risk management, aeronautical decision making. Go arounds are okay, regardless of what Scott says. You know, um, just scrapping the flight altogether. You know, but the, the there's there's external pressures the timeline, am I going to graduate just like there is in real life? I'm going to miss a business meeting. I'm going to miss a cruise. All these things, all those same limitations apply, they just take a different form. And so I I think it's incredibly realistic that the CFI lets the the student, the applicant, make some decisions like that at a certain point. But they need to set the foundation, or they could easily be setting them up for For failure like they're going to show up every day and since you didn't as the instructor didn't say anything they assume it's good enough they they assume so you have to you know lay the foundation and and teach them all that stuff pretty much from day one checking the weather risk management what are what the legal limit is versus what is acceptable and what is acceptable for their skill level and their proficiency
0: yeah because there's like that's there's a lot of that especially at the beginning where the student is just mimicking the instructor like they have no clue it's like maybe it, you know especially if they're not around an aviation environment growing up where like you and scott kind of had a, a big advantage of that before you ever started flight training you saw a lot of this going on you saw people making mistakes you saw people being stupid you know where most people you know they're you know, even if they have a family member. Who's a pilot? You know, maybe they didn't spend that much time at airports, you know, growing up. Yeah. Um, where it's just like they're just trying to figure out what's normal and what's not normal for a while at the beginning there.
1: Oh, so yeah. Like, and almost it, forever. Because I mean you could go out to any airport and you could see somebody do something stupid.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: You know, it's who who are you who's your metering stick, you know, when you're trying to when you're just learning, or even if you're more advanced. There's always somebody who had been flying at that airport longer that you perceived as an expert or knowledgeable or they're doing it right. You're going to look up to them. And then only after you get to a certain level, it's like, man, they're crazy. I can't believe they're going to go take off in this. There could be other things at work, of course. But I mean, there are some very blatant in your face times where it's like, what are they thinking? But they come back you know what I mean? They end up landing later that day or next week. And you're like, well, eh, must has been okay. They know something. I don't maybe, or maybe they're just lucky.
0: Maybe there's been in the paper clip.
1: Well, yeah, right. Right. In more ways than one. Yep. For sure. So like, it's like, what would you rather, you know, would you rather, you know, have, uh, um, well, yeah, I got no, I got nowhere to go with that one. I thought I had something to say, but I don't.
0: Okay. I was just reminiscing in my head real quick here. Like, John would sign Scott and I off for like solo privileges, Uh and he just—the only limitation we had is stay in the local area, which Mm -hmm. that alone is broad. You know, is that Northern Ohio? Is that the pattern? It's just yeah, stay in the area, stay around town. You know, nor walk for fuel. We go look at the islands. Don't land at them. But if you want to fly around out there and look, it was fine. (laughs) Yeah. And it just, you know, see you in a couple months.
1: Yeah, I to this day I don't I don't know what local means. Because like no. my dad he'd always ask that. You just stay in local, like when I was doing solo stuff, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go over to Port Clinton, you know, or something. Like, is that local? I think it is. Yeah. You know. But I don't I, I'm sure there's a definition or there is something buried somewhere that I should know, but I don't. So whenever it was just like um staying at that airport, that's when I, when I was doing CFI stuff, um, takeoff landings, I would like write local then when you're staying at that pattern, when you're staying, you know, you, well, okay, your point of landing is the same. Like if you're going to go out and do air work and basically like you were just talking about, if you're going to go out and sightsee for a little bit, fly over somebody's house, come back, do takeoff landings at the airport you took off from, that's all local to me. But like if you go Sandusky for us, you know, Sandusky, go eight miles away, go to Port Clinton or 12 miles away, whatever it is, go to Port Clinton. eh, That's Sandusky to PCW, you know, back then. So, but that's a lot of latitude he gave to you guys, but he was confident. You know, he took you from no time to solo and he was competent. He had seen you over those 10, 15, 20 hours building your aeronautical decision making. He saw, I don't want to say conservative nature in you, but he saw sound judgment. And then he gave you guys a really, you know, really long leash. And that's awesome. Yeah. That says that says more, more about you than maybe his, I think, that says more about you. Him being, um, he's been around the block, he had a lot of experience and a lot of, uh, through over a long, long flying career, a lot of different types of airplanes a lot of different types of operations. Um, I think his judgment, think how refined his judgment is taught a lot of people how to fly. Yeah. He's been around. So I think it says more about your guy's judgment that he saw than maybe what may be perceived as his, uh, you know, nonchalant attitude as, as an instructor.
0: Yeah, I never knew. He taught... I found this out years later. He taught Jody how to fly. He was Jody's primary. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
1: And so, that. look at, you know... Now, now, Scott, you know, as you know, he's all talk. When he gets in the airplane, he's, he's rough around the edges in terms of SOPs and adherence to things. But he's good, great stick and rudder skills. And he wants to be a good pilot. Like he wants to be a good pilot. And if he sees a better way to do things or knows that steep turn wasn't very good, he wants to do it again. He wants to do it. He wants to be better and better and better. But I mean, he's all talk here, which I guess we need, but, um, and, and so look at the commonality. Then you three were all taught by Don and look at, and I know you, and I know your OCD tendencies, and your perfectionist attitude. Scott is all talk, and when he gets in the airplane, for the most part, at least that, that's what I get out of him when I go fly with him. But maybe yeah, this guy busts his chops just a little. And I don't bust chops chop that much because I don't have to. And then Jody is, you know, very perfectionist. He may yeah, be worse than me. Yeah, even though he's not a...
0: He's just Perf- He's got his commercial, but he never used it, I think. He may have his, his ATP.
1: Part. He may have his ATP.
0: Yeah, just because he wanted to have it. Yeah, wallet. just because he
1: wanted to have it. Yeah, he's got all the all the ratings that he doesn't need, but he just wanted to have them. And yeah. that's, I, it's one of those things: nature versus nurture. Like, did Don instill those things in you early on, or is it just the 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 commonality of people who want to learn how to fly? Are those just typical inherent uh, personality traits? that happened, you know, meld really well with Don's instructing style and, and building a good foundation of, of good judgment and stuff? And I don't Don, know.
0: Don, he was very uh, selective with who he would even work with his students um, because he was just doing it for fun. He didn't need to do it. You know, it was, he didn't notice the money we paid him for hourly as far as his overall lifestyle. He was literally right. doing it just because he enjoys teaching people how to fly. Right. And uh, so, yeah, if he didn't like working with somebody, just, he'd recommend another CFI.
1: Yeah. It's interesting. You know, yeah, just the whole the whole thing with how people, I don't know how you instill the desire in somebody if they don't want to be. I want to be better. I try to be, you know, but I fall, you know, I fall very, very short all the time. But I have the desire to be. I don't study as much as I should, and I rem- I forget a lot of stuff, and and uh, I remember big picture stuff, of course. But there's a lot, I, you know. When I go to my you know um, recurrent training and stuff like that, I have to get the books out when I'm when I when I'm about to go take another oral exam, I have to get the books out and reread all the limitations and ma- immediate action items and and uh, memory items and all these things. I have to get those back remembered because you haven't used them in a year, so just like everybody else. I mean, just cause you're and at the airlines, we all had to do it too. You, you know, somebody we'd be, you know, flying to from Charlotte to Tulsa or something and dude next to you bust out a stack of note cards. Oh, you got training. Yeah. Next week. It's the way it is. Yeah. Everybody, every, at every stage, it's always more learning. It's always just learning and wanting to be better. And, it never ends, and I just think I think it's probably like you said, it's probably a big portion personality. Um, but I yeah, I guess the rest of it, I guess would have to be the CFI. But then, you know, if your first gig, so like let's say you've gone and got all your ratings, yeah, yeah um, all the way up through you know commercial, and you got a commercial multi, and let's say you go build five hundred hours or whatever. And then there's somebody at the field that needs somebody sitting right seat in the king air. Since that, in my opinion, that kind of is like resetting the clock. In terms of like your knowledge, like if to you, psychologically, you're a 500 hour. You just got through that magical 500 hours. This is kind of your first flying gig. Maybe you're an instructor. And even still, I would still call this your first gig because this is this is what you instructed for was to build that time, go get in this turbine-powered airplane. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I feel like psychologically it's resetting the clock, and then the things this person kind of teaches you, you're going to remember those. Those are going to be ingrained in you for forever and may be impossible to get out. So if that first person, maybe it's a Pilatus, Those, you know, Those are popular. Um, or, you know, a, Ma- a Malibu or a Cirrus, Cirrus, I guess, wouldn't really count. Malibu, probably not either. I'm thinking you need to have something that is a big enough jump for you. You're like, oh, man, big iron, right? So I'm thinking, you know, something twin, pressurized, turboprop, you know, so that's why the King Air just kind of came to my mind. The quintessential, you know, um, light business aircraft or whatever it is. That person could be very detrimental could be and they could also be awesome for you and if they are awesome that means they're probably echoing the stuff that a good instructor already taught you you're not seeing anything different from them other than like hey this this airplane which that is easier you know the specifics about that airplane i think that is easier to dump if they teach you bad habits in an airplane that's just bad habits in a specific airplane that's easier to dump You know what I mean, but if they teach you, oh, you know, yeah, the limitation is 250 knots below 10,000 feet. Nobody does that. And then if you start, you know, having a cavalier attitude about, you know, oh, just be close, you know, or the sterile cockpit concept, you know, no, no unnecessary talking below 10,000 feet, right? If like nobody listens to that, which they say is the one of the most often broke regulations. In the airlines, it's yeah, I mean it's it's broken. Don't get me wrong. But not that much. Pretty pretty much on topic if somebody's talking. Yeah. So if your first gig, you know, once you've kind of made it and somebody's asking you to go fly their big iron airplane with them, that person could be very detrimental to you if they start teaching you bad habits or to be lax with adherence to regulations. And that's you know, the, the CFI needs the personality, the person coming in the CFI to kind of mold you and take that, that maybe perfectionist attitude, um, that wanting to be professional, good judgment, good airmanship that want to be respected, um, as, as a, as a rule follower. And as a, you know, a, a, a proficient pilot, professional pilot, um, professional acting. I don't know how else to say that, but professional acting, um, Pilot. If you want all those when you come in, that CFI can can mold you, teach you the regulations to follow, and you would you'll carry that with you for forever. Yeah, and then I, it's ma- good.
0: It's a, it's a difficult balance because there's a lot of aspects. Because we we talk about you know doing some stuff beyond the show here in the future. We haven't decided on anything yet, let alone announced it. But taking that aspect of that airline mentality that professional corporate pilot mentality and bringing that to like the GA community yeah Which i think i think we kind of do that with this show a little bit and a lot of times i've seen this in the in flight schools at like 141 that's kind of why i have the gripe with the 141 schools um I, you've heard me make comments throughout the episodes Is because they bring a lot of that good aspects, but somehow turns into, for lack of a better explanation, this the stick and rudder esque type stuff seems to go down once that's once that's the focus. It's like nobody's trying to. You either like one forty one or you know part sixty one like grass strip like Scott and I learned off of. Or just a regular, smaller, uncontrolled airport. And you got, like, great stick and rudder skills. You know, even when you have an autopilot, you never even turn it on just because you like, you know, it's weird flying the autopilot. And then you have, like, a 141 school that's just designed, you know, it's backing. Sometimes they're part-owned by certain airlines, and they got fast tracks to certain, mm-hmm. you know, airlines, and they're just focused on, one hundred percent just getting that person into a cockpit of a big plane as soon as possible. All the yeah. nuances, all that art of the landing, the art of the flare, all that pilotage is just lost. And I just why do you, why do you think that of, it is? I've just seen students go through these schools
1: and it's Do you think they're just trying to cram them out? Like they're just trying to get them out? It's a it's a commercial endeavor for them, right? That's
0: that's it that it's but it's like the the saying is pilot factories, and I won't yeah. mention any schools on here, but you know the the stereotypical pilot yeah. factory, yeah, and they're they're just checking the boxes, and the only feedback they're getting is from you know regional air carriers, okay, uh-huh. we're noticing this, you guys need to you know get this in your curriculum so that we don't have this you yeah. know issue on the flight deck of Embrars, you know, and then when the autopilot does something weird. Their first reaction isn't just, you know, grab manual control of the plane, which it would be, for like, sure you. Even now, you have the professionalism, but you could shut that thing down and hand fly it if you had to, Yeah right. like, Just because you you wouldn't think twice about it. Where it's, you know, you have a few hundred hours in smaller planes, and a lot of times the autopilot's on, even for that. Like a few episodes ago, I think Echol said they can fly the ILS perfectly. You know, they can nail it every time like a robot. But, you know, if something, anything goes out of the ordinary where they actually have to take, you know, turn the airplane or something, it's just, it's like they're almost clueless. I just, it's that balance, it's that delicate balance, I think, to try to get all those classic pilotage skills also combined with all the information we now have about, you know, crash statistics and risk management and aeronautical decision-making stuff and like being procedural and everything. It's like, how do you combine that with just being able to fly the damn airplane?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, I think a lot of that with the ACS, I mean, for the, the, change from the ACS to the PTS. I'm sure a lot of the driving force there was probably more, I mean seems to be for the risk management, getting that into every you know every you know um, area of operation and you know really gr- making that uh, the, bringing that to the forefront, making things preventable. Don't let yourself get three steps out of four towards a, a damn emergency, and I I just that that's what I see with the ACS, and I think that's a good move. You know, we had at the airlines when, um, well, one of them we had at the beginning uh, from the start when I was there, but then the other one we got it right towards when I was leaving. It's called AQP uh, Advanced Qualification Program Procedures. Well, I don't I don't even know why I don't remember it program. I want to say program, advanced qualification program Yeah, whatever. Somebody can look it up, but it takes and changes shifts the, um, shifts the focus away from show up for your, um, for your check ride, knock out these maneuvers, just barely meet the standard, just barely meet the standard and we'll, and, and you're good. And the AQP, um, eventually gave the instructors the latitude to like, okay, technically that steep turn or that stall recovery met standards, but let's go ahead and do it again. And the focus was on proficiency, train to proficiency. And that's what everybody expects out of their airline pilots, right? They don't want you to just barely meet the FAA standard, the FAA minimum. They want you to exceed it. And so what they did is they they took away and it so, the, so several things happened if my memory serves me when they when they migrated towards the system, the exam. So it didn't go in your permanent record like you didn't really fail. Like there's there was not like a pass fail thing. Basically, the only way you could fail it is if you didn't get through everything. And I don't know if that even technically made it a fail or if that was an incomplete, but I mean, I'm not trying to show how little I know about what it was because it's years ago now, but um, I think that's important distinction that you focus on being proficient, not just barely meet the standard, then okay, check that box, move on. Let's okay, that was good. you met the standard or maybe you didn't. But let's train you until you meet the standard by a wide margin till you're better than just the minimum. I think that's a great way to look at. it. I think that's a great stance uh, that I think the general public would appreciate the FAA having, don't they? And 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 they took away the fear of an examiner. So you're being graded on the X maneuver. They took the fear away from the examiner of saying, "Hey, that wasn't quite good enough. Let's let's go." So now they they didn't like they didn't give the examiner any reason. Just kind of like turn a blind eye to maybe something that didn't quite meet standards and say that it did because everything, this was the last item on the check ride and it was just barely out of standards, but they're going to call it a satisfactory check ride. They took away that issue because they weren't damning this person professionally. They took away that, that aspect of it. They could say, Hey, that was unsatisfactory or that didn't meet the standard. Let's do that a few more times until, until the examiner is happy. If they had time left on the clock in the SIM, do it 10 times, you know, do do it 15 times, do it to do it. If they have a half hour left, do it for a half hour. You know what I mean? So, and you could do that with single engine go arounds, whatever V1 cuts, all these steep turns, stalls, slow flight, unusual attitude recoveries due till the cows come home. As long as you have time in the simulator left to use, as long as you could complete all the items in in the time, you're good. You got you. You walked out with pass. You could you could go back to, to uh, go back to flying the line. I think that's important. Train to proficiency, and so you know as it pertains, I don't know, pertain necessarily to the one forty one versus sixty one argument. I think you said the the pilot factory. I mean, it's it's a commercial operation. They are in the business of handling as many students as they can. You know, because those instructors have an eight hour a day limit. And how many students can, can we get in? How many students can we get through? And that, I think that's kind of all it is. Obviously there's some great pilots to come out of there and, but they have to want to, they want, they have to want to develop and hone their stick and rudder skills. And when they only get, so when they graduate with 190 hours or whatever for a commercial or whatever, I can't remember. I know they have a, a reduced limit at 141 for a commercial. But 250 hours, even if you're going part 61, that's not a lot. Man, think, you and I, we could do a good landing at 250 hours, but not much else compared to where we are now.
0: I just, it's, I don't know. There's something said for just flying around once in a while, not doing a training thing and just...
1: How do you get that exposure, though? A Seminole $510 it. an hour for them.
0: I know it. I know it. I don't know how you do it. But it's just so valuable to be able to just play around with the aircraft like people could, you know, in years past. And, you know, depending on the, the aircraft, how wealthy mm-hmm. you are to just go do something like that.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I mean, I think we've, I think we've done as good a job as we can do is making a case for maybe some aircraft ownership, get into a club, yeah, both do both those things, and you know, but you gotta, I mean, you gotta, I mean, there's still headaches that some people may just not want to deal with owning an airplane. But yeah. if you want, if you want to commit to this trajectory in your life of being a professional pilot or you know being a competent you know, proficient pilot.
0: Got but, a pri- you know, private pilot that, with a professional attitude, you know? Yeah,
1: just, I don't know how to say that. I'm sure yeah. I'm just completely missing it. But like, what is Jody, for example? What is his, he's not a professional pilot, but he's a... I don't I,
0: think, I don't, did, did, did he ever get a CFI? Does he hold those just for I fun? I don't or? think so. I don't think he okay. has those. I didn't, I didn't think he had those. It's like, I'd like to just somehow figure out how to get more people like Jody. Because I think Jody, as an example, this is hard for the listeners who have no idea who we're talking about. And we're not going to go explain it. But Jody, and there's this guy, Lee and I both know. Scott knows him too. Northern Ohio, Lake Erie Allen area flight legend up there. And he just, he, he does, he embodies the... He's got all the stick and rudder, all that stuff. Because, you know, Don, same instructor Scott and I had trained him. And then he's also got the OCD factor. He's got that desire to just be a perfectionist. But at the same time, knows how to run the airplane. He can go, you know, shoot the landings and stuff with the boys and hold his own and, you know, being able to grease it on, being able to just do everything, where nobody's like, "Oh, it's that that nerdy one forty one, you know, school guy who." Uh, not to make fun of stereotype, and you know, I'm just trying to make this fictional character. Yeah, And everyone's gonna be like, "Oh yeah, he knows all the books, or he knows, you know, all the procedures." But you throw this at him, and he's not going to know how to do that or this or you know, whatever you name something that. A local boy would know, for lack of a better term. Um, he can do it all, you know what I mean? I just wish more get more people to that level of just, they can hop in and just fly a plane like a jet, but they can also do short field, you know, jump in a tail wheel or something. I haven't flown with Rob Engel in a while, but I bet, I'm guessing he might be like this, because he was trained, you know, we had the 150 together, he was trained by Don. Then he went with to Embry Riddle. Uh huh. Now he's flying for you know a major. Seven I just threes. I
1: I wonder though because, and I don't know, but some people think like like when I go fly, <clears throat> for work, I try for the most part. I mean, it's a totally different type of operation, so you know things are not apples to apples. But I try to hold myself to those same standards. And when I mean standards, like what standards could you possibly be talking about? It's not like we're busting out steep turns when I'm doing takeoffs and landings in and a Cessna 150 or a Piper Cub. But so I guess I don't really know. I, that's a rhetorical question that I don't even have an answer for myself internally. But I, I approach risk management the same way. Just like, you know, when I'm flying the family to and from the island, I go way high. That's a yeah. safety thing. I don't take for granted that I'm flying a lesser, even if my family wasn't in the airplane. I guess I've just gotten older and I just realized that accidents happening, that are accidents happen that might not be my fault, probably, well, not probably aren't, but might not be my fault. Things are out of my control. And I want to try to you know, mitigate those risks as best I can. And so I try to do that no matter what I'm flying. I try to to put that aeronautical decision making basically as my step one in any operation I'm trying to conduct. So that is what I'm trying to think about all the time before I get in the airplane, taxing out to the end of the runway, taking off. I try to think about what if this happens right now. That's me. But I don't know like some people I, I've seen, like, okay, I'm not flying this jet anymore. I'm not flying for this major airline. I'm just going to fly my buddy's RV eight or RV six or their super Cub or their cub and just, just don't care about anything. Do a right traffic pattern, fly low, buzz something, um, flying around with broken equipment in the airplane. Um, I'm sure there's other things, but those are the just kind of minute examples that might not be a danger, but are just like, you wouldn't do that at work. So why are you doing that now? And I don't know, and I'm not saying I'm not saying that that uh, um, Rob would do that, but I'm just saying I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know, and that, that's what's interesting about certain people. But back to the con- the thing about Jody is, um, I just wrote down. I'm trying to write notes so I can follow up and not have episodes where I'm like, God, I wish I would have said that. I thought about it, and then I forgot about it, and then after we were done, I thought of it. I just wrote down quintessential. And I feel like Jody is your quintessential, like, I don't know another word. I don't know the the kind of the, the next word, but I want to say the quintessential airman. He's just, he's got a passion for everything aviation. He is up on new rules, new changes. He is beyond um, professional in his approach to flying. I mean, you you could consider him a paraprofessional because I know he has been he's flown right seat you know, professionally for as a fill-in. He's done that oh, okay. before.
0: I forgot about that, yeah.
1: So, I mean, you could consider him a paraprofessional, but I almost think that that doesn't do his kind of his um, prowess any... I don't think it does his prowess credit. So this gentleman, I don't want to give away too much. I, I mean, obviously that's about as much as we'll go like with him personally, but his his family, you know, they um he's got flying kind of in his blood. His brother flies, his uh his uncle flies, and him and his brother started um uh, when they started out, they got a um they had a Piper Warrior, then they graduated up to a Blanca um super Viking and they got a Taylor Craft. So that that that's where some tailwheel stick and rudder. Not that he didn't have it before that. Um some stick and rudder time there and they had the, the his brother had um had his own airplane at that point in time as well and then uh, jody wanted wanted more he wanted to learn more he wanted to continue his education in, in kind of in flying and aviation and went on to buy a, a piper twin comanche and he takes great pride in all of these things all these airplanes that that we've listed have been pretty much the best example of their kind
0: Oh yeah. He waits. He's like my dad with boats. Like he finds these mint, mint, mint airplanes and improves upon them after he mm-hmm. buys them towards mm-hmm. just unbelievably perfect. Mm-hmm. Like I would feel like cautious when I like had to go in his hangar for some reason. Totally. Sort of, like when I'm walking around the plane and be like, Okay, I'm on a Double make sure nothing happens to this plane while I'm in this hangar,
1: right? And that is, and that is, that is a respect you give him because of your perception. I mean, he's well, he's a good dude, obviously. You know, we all know him very well. He's a great dude. They don't make him like that anymore, in my opinion. But he just, the way he conducts himself as a pilot, it just, it just, so much respect for him, and because there's nobody holding him to that highest standard except himself. He far so when he did his um commercial, a single engine commercial check ride, the examiner told me that was the best commercial check ride he had ever done. And this is Zeus that that Zeus Echo is, talks about, yeah. And so it's like I mean, and not that I would expect anything else. I almost didn't even know I didn't even need to know that because that I mean I expect that out of this gentleman. Yeah. Um but he's he has a thirst for for knowledge and to be better than he was yesterday. And I think that's all something we can all learn from and that's what I try to do every day. Um but we fall short. I he does he does too. <laughs> you know, but it's something that that is built into him. It's just his personality. Yeah, he's got that super crazy Type A personality, which all pilots, I think, have a little bit of.
0: Yeah, for sure. You got anything else in your note list? I think this is a good uh, time. Depending on if I, if I edit what I edit out. Yeah,
1: I think you need to add a lot of my stuff. But um, yeah. no, I would just say um, you have want want to be better. Just because nobody is holding you to that standard, just. Try to just be conscientious of of the regulations. And if it's just as easy to do it wrong as it is to do it right, just do it right. That's that's the biggest thing that I see. I see people almost go out of their way for a reason I can't explain to do things wrong when they could wait and take their time. So it's like, it's twofold. They could take their time and do it right. When it's like it's a non-jeopardy. It's not like time is is an element in these in some of these circumstances. So, just t- take your time, do things right, and um, just hold yourself to a higher standard because, you know, maybe nobody else will.
0: Yeah. A little anti-authority maybe somewhere in there. For Hathagous sure. Attitude.
1: For sure. And I get yeah. that. And I do get that. But when I... I always I try to fly like there's an FAA inspector you know in the jump seat. Yeah. And I always find it easier if I am always in checkride mode. A checkride is just another day. Like I've uh, all these operators like you fly one you fly one way and then on checkride day you got to change everything and you make mistakes because you don't normally do it that way because now you're doing it right. You know, you're doing it the right way and what you're supposed to do. So I always do to the best of my ability, which I fall short a lot, a lot. Um, I always do the best of my ability on that given day to do it, to do it the right way. So that if an FA inspector was there, just another day. I'm not sweating because the flight before this and the flight after this, I'm going to do it the exact same way to yeah, the best of my ability.
0: Be, there's something to be said about that for sure.
1: Yeah. That's a good so.
0: spot to uh to wrap this up. Yep. The um yeah. yeah email. I don't think we have any more reviews. I don't know how any of that works anymore. Apple's changing everything up. It's very confusing. I have an old iPhone that's. I don't think I'm seeing as much as new iPhones are seeing. They're trying to motivate me by little little stuff not working. I think to make me upgrade, but I refuse. And um so email is our preferred method method of communication my email is faraim at robertberger.com b-e-r-g-e-r this is german way not as a sandwich way mr griffing here is faraim at lee com. g-r-i-f-f-i-n-g and uh yeah that was a no idea what i'm going to title that or anything but i think it was interesting lee and i just uh, scott's not here obviously lee and i just wanted to do something because he had a hotel room with great internet connection and uh, Scott is Scott couldn't record. I guess he's something about a wedding anniversary. I don't know. It's not a good excuse. Not a good excuse at all to miss a, miss a far recording. So yeah, send him some hate mail F A R A I M at Scott com B O R E S. And I said, yeah, just remind him, you know, wedding anniversaries are not worth skipping hosting duties for. So I think we'll leave it at that. Thanks for listening. Till next time. Take care.
1: Thanks, guys.